My name is Professor Rachel Bodell, and you're listening to The Bible in a Year, the story podcast, where we encounter a living God that is calling us to live a life from, with, and for Him. This podcast is designed to help you listen to the one connected story of the Bible and understand it perhaps just a little bit better by learning from biblical scholars that have helped me. We will read the Bible out loud and explore how the one connected story of the kingdom of God is unfolding and how we fit into that story today. This is day 151, and I'm reading from the NIV version of the Bible, 2 Kings 10, Amos 1-3, through and Psalm 110. 2 Kings 10. Now there were in Samaria 70 sons of the house of Ahab. So Jehu wrote letters and sent them to Samaria, to the officials of Jezreel, to the elders and to the guardians of Ahab's children. He said, You have your master's sons with you, and you have chariots and horses, a fortified city and weapons. Now, as soon as this letter reaches you, choose the best and most worthy of your master's sons and set him on his father's throne. Then fight for your master's house. But they were terrified and said, if two kings could not resist him, how can we? So the palace administrator, the city governor, the elders, and the guardians sent this message to Jehu. We are your servants and we will do anything you say. We will not appoint anyone as king. You do whatever you think is best. Then Jehu wrote them a second letter saying, If you are on my side and will obey me, take the heads of your master's sons and come to me in Jezreel by this time tomorrow. Now the royal princes, 70 of them, were with the leading men of the city who were rearing them. When the letter arrived, these men took the princes and slaughtered all 70 of them. They put their heads in baskets and sent them to Jehu in Jezreel. When the messenger arrived, he told Jehu, they have brought the heads of the princes. Then Jehu ordered, put them in two piles at the entrance of the city gate until morning. The next morning, Jehu went out. He stood before all the people and said, you are innocent. It was I who conspired against my master and killed him. But who killed all these? Know then that not a word the Lord has spoken against the house of Ahab will fail. The Lord has done what he announced through his servant Elijah. So Jehu killed everyone in Jezreel who remained of the house of Ahab, as well as all his chief men, his close friends, and his priests, leaving him no survivor. Jehu then set out and went towards Samaria at Beth Ekhed of the shepherds. He met some relatives of Ahaziah, king of Judah, and asked, Who are you? They said, We are relatives of Ahaziah. And we have come down to greet the family of the king and of the queen mother. Take them alive, he ordered. So they took them alive and slaughtered them by the well of Bethaked. Forty-two of them, he left no survivor. After he left there, he came upon Jehanadab, son of Rechab, who was on his way to meet him. Jehu greeted him and said, Are you in accord with me, as I am with you? I am, Jehunadab answered. If so, said Jehu, give me your hand. So he did, and Jehu helped him up into the chariot. Jehu said, Come with me and see my zeal for the Lord. Then he had him ride along in his chariot. When Jehu came to Samaria, he killed all who were left there of Ahab's family. He destroyed them according to the word of the Lord spoken to Elijah. Then Jehu brought all the people together and said to them, Ahab served Baal a little. Jehu will serve him much. Now summon all the prophets of Baal, all his servants and all his priests. See that no one is missing, because I am going to hold a great sacrifice for Baal. Anyone who fails to come will no longer live. But Jehu was acting deceptively in order to destroy the servants of Baal. Jehu said, call an assembly in honor of Baal. So they proclaimed it. Then he sent word through Israel, and all the servants of Baal came. Not one stayed away. 
They crowded into the temple of Baal until it was full from one end to the other. And Jehu said to the keeper of the wardrobe, Bring robes for all the servants of Baal. So he brought out robes for them. Then Jehu and Jehonadab, son of Rechab, went into the temple of Baal. Jehu said to the servants of Baal, Look around and see that no one who serves the Lord is here with you, only servants of Baal. So they went in to make sacrifices and burn offerings. Now Jehu had posted 80 men outside with this warning. If one of you lets any of the men I am placing in your hands escape, it will be your life for his life. As soon as Jehu had finished making the burnt offerings, he ordered the guards and officers, Go in and kill them. Let no one escape. So they cut them down with the sword. The guards and officers threw the bodies out and then entered the inner shrine of the temple of Baal. They brought the sacred stone out of the temple of Baal and burned it. They demolished the sacred stone of Baal and tore down the temple of Baal. And people have used it for a latrine to this day. So Jehu destroyed Baal worship in Israel. However, he did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which had caused Israel to commit the worship of the golden calves at Bethel and Dan. The Lord said to Jehu, Because you have done well in accomplishing what is right in my eyes and have done all to the house of Ahab, all I had in mind to do, your descendants will sit on the throne of Israel to the fourth generation. Yet Jehu was not careful to keep the law of the Lord, the God of Israel, with all his heart. He did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam, which he had caused Israel to commit. In those days, the Lord began to reduce the size of Israel. Hazael overpowered the Israelites throughout their territory, east of the Jordan and all the land of Gilead, the region of Gad, Reuben, and Manasseh, from Aroer by the Arnon Gorge through Gilead to Bashan. As for the other events of Jehu's reign, all he did and all his achievements, are they not written in the book of the annuals of the kings of Israel? Jehu rested with his ancestors and was buried in Samaria, and Jehoaz, his son, succeeded him as king. The time that Jehu reigned over Israel and Samaria was 28 years. Amos chapter 1. The words of Amos, one of the shepherds of Tekoa, the vision he saw concerning Israel two years before the earthquake, when Uzziah was king of Judah and Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, was king of Israel. He said, The Lord roars from Zion and thunders from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds dry up and the top of Carmel withers. This is what the Lord says, For three sins of Damascus, even for four, I will not relent, because she threshed Gilead with sledges having iron teeth. I will send fire on the house of Hazael, that will consume the fortress of Ben-Hadad. I will break down the gate of Damascus. I will destroy the king who is in the valley of Aven, and the one who holds the scepter in Beth-Adin. The people of Aram will go into exile to Ker, says the Lord. This is what the Lord says, For three sins of Gaza, even for four, I will not relent, because she took captive whole communities and sold them to Edom. I will send fire on the walls of Gaza that will consume her fortresses. I will destroy the king of Ashdod and the one who holds the scepter and Ashkelon. I will turn my hand against Ekron till the last of the Philistines are dead, says the sovereign Lord. This is what the Lord says, For three sins of Tyre, even for four, I will not relent, because she sold whole communities of captives to Edom, disregarding a treaty of brotherhood. I will send fire on the walls of Tyre that will consume her fortresses. 
This is what the Lord says, For three sins of Edom, even for four, I will not relent. Because he pursued his brother with a sword and slaughtered the women of the land, because his anger raged continually and his fury flamed unchecked. I will send fire on Taman that will consume the fortresses of Basra. This is what the Lord says, For three sins of Ammon, even for four, I will not relent. Because he ripped open the pregnant women of Gilead in order to extend his borders. I will set fire to the walls of Rabbah that will consume her fortresses amid war cries on the day of battle. Amid violent winds on a stormy day, her king will go into exile, he and his officials together, says the Lord. This is what the Lord says, For three sins of Moab, even for four, I will not relent, because he burned to ashes the bones of Edom's king. I will send fire on Moab that will consume the fortresses of Kerioth. Moab will go down in great tumult, amid war cries and the blast of trumpet. I will destroy her ruler and kill all her officials with him, says the Lord. This is what the Lord says, For three sins of Judah, even for four, I will not relent, because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his decrees, because they have been led astray by false gods, the gods their ancestors followed. I will send fire on Judah that will consume the fortresses of Jerusalem. This is what the Lord says, For three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not relent. They sell the innocent for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. Father and son use the same girl and so profane my holy name. They lie down beside every altar on the garments taken in pledge. In the house of their God they drink wine, taken as fines. Yet I destroyed the Amorites before them. Though they were tall as the cedars and strong as the oaks, I destroyed their fruit above and their roots below. I brought you up out of Egypt and led you for forty years in the wilderness to give you the land of the Amorites. I also raised up prophets from among your children and Nazarites from among your youths. Is this not true, people of Israel, declares the Lord? But you made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets not to prophesy. Now then, I will crush you as a cart crushes when loaded with grain. The swift will not escape, the strong will not muster their strength, and the warrior will not save his life. The archer will not stand his ground, the fleet-footed soldier will not go away, and the horseman will not save his life. Even the bravest warriors will flee naked on that day, declares the Lord." Hear this word, people of Israel, the word the Lord has spoken against you, against the whole family I brought up out of Egypt. You only have I chosen of all the families of the earth, therefore I will punish you for all your sins. Do two walk together unless they have agreed to do so? Does a lion roar in the thicket when it has no prey? Does it growl in its den when it has caught nothing? Does a bird swoop down to trap on the ground when no bait is there? Does a trap spring from the ground if it has not caught anything? When a trumpet sounds in a city, do not people tremble. When disaster comes to a city, has not the Lord caused it? Surely the sovereign Lord does nothing without revealing his plan to his servants, the prophets. The lion has roared, who will not fear? The sovereign Lord has spoken, who can but prophesy? Proclaim to the fortress of Ashdod and to the fortress of Egypt. Assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria. See the great unrest with her and the oppression among her people. They do not know how to do right, declares the Lord, who stores up in their fortresses what they have plundered and looted. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. An enemy will overrun your land, pull down your strongholds, and plunder your fortresses. 
This is what the Lord says. As a shepherd rescues from the lion's mouth only two leg bones or a piece of an ear, so will the Israelites living in Samaria be rescued with only the head of a bed and a piece of fabric from a couch. Hear this and testify against the descendants of Jacob, declares the Lord, the Lord God Almighty. On the day I punish Israel for her sins, I will destroy the altars of Bethel. The horns of the altar will be cut off and fall to the ground. I will tear down the winter house along with the summer house. The houses adorned with ivory will be destroyed, and the mansion will be demolished, declares the Lord. Psalm 110 The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle. Arrayed in holy splendor, your young men will come to you, like dew from the morning's womb. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the ruler of the whole earth. He will drink from a brook along the way, and so he will lift his head high. Whoosh! Second Kings starts with, in quotes, the surrender of future claimants to the throne, or the execution, seemingly, of King Ahab's successors and everyone he seems to know or have any influence or power by the rising king Jehu. It is a pretty dark story. And Jehu had the military behind him, which gave him much power. Remember, God is using Jehu to end the kingship, the house of Ahab, as he promised for Ahab and his wife Jezebel's terrible, terrible, unfaithful leadership and their hard hearts. In verses 15 to 17, we read this interesting story element, as Dr. Conkle explains, where Jehonadab, the Rechargebite, sought out an alliance with Jehu, assumingly because, as Jeremiah 35, 5 through 11 describes, the Recherubites refused wine and the agricultural way of life. They were not like the Canaanites in lifestyle, nor did they participate in Baal worship. We also read this story about Jehu's deceptive tactics of setting up a Baal festival for the purpose of having them all killed and all the sacred pillars and symbols destroyed. This is like hard to take in, but at the same time, you hold that intention with the fact that we remember why any worship that isn't God is is so devastating. And one of many reasons was that common Canaanite religion with gods like the Ashtaroth and Molech. And particularly in times of crisis, the people, according to research, would commonly burn firstborn, earlyborn, new baby sons, sacrifice them to these gods. And I mean, I just, that's particularly dark to me. So all of this is just like layers of darkness, but God is saying enough is enough and his judgment is being played out. On one hand, King Jehu is acknowledged for having ended Baal worship in northern Israel at this time, but there's always a but, right? But in what I consider frustrating irony, he still continued to worship calf shrines in Bethel and Dan. Oh my goodness. I just don't know how you can do that when you doled out this punishment to kill a whole extended family and take down this whole false religion for Yahweh God and not know this is Yahweh God and his doing. It's just crazy, but also a testament to how our brains can just miss it. 
So King Jehu is promised four generational dynasties, which is roughly 100 years, which leads to their complete assumption into the Assyrian Empire as they are exiles and they essentially lose their independent identity as Israelite tribes and a nation. While Jehu had military might, it was weakening to their neighboring enemies who were growing in their oppressive power. We introduce Amos. That's a new prophet which Dr. Mackey describes as a prophet focused on calling Israel out on their unjust hypocrisy, whereas Hosea the prophet, which we just finished that book, focused on calling Israel out on their idolatry and adultery, so prostituting themselves in heart and behavior, and the analogy was through a story of his unfaithful wife. The prophet Amos was a shepherd and a fig tree farmer, and we'll learn more about that in chapter 7, verse 14. And Amos was from the southern kingdom. Remember, this was in a time when Israel was split into two kingdoms, the north and the south, where 10 tribes were in the north and two, two tribes, the descendants of Judah and Benjamin, were in the south. King Jeroboam II was ruling at the time in the north, and remember, he did win battles and wealth, but was known as one of the most unfaithful and wicked kings. As Mackey reminds us, Jeroboam II largely started or intensified his drift from the Lord by allowing idols, remember the calf idols and everything else, and then being apathetic to injustices. So this insight alone challenges me to reflect on what I might allow and be apathetic towards, because these are red flags to the steadfastness of the Shema of our heart toward the Lord. As a response to this, in quotes, allowing, and quotes, apathy of the king of the northern kingdom, God calls Amos, and he goes up to the northern kingdom, the city of Bethel, to remind them of the truth and what they are doing is wrong. This book is a collection of Amos's poems, sermons, and visions over this time period. And Dr. Mackey explains the Minor Prophet book of Amos. Remember, it's not minor because it's unimportant, but just because it's a small book. Explains the book in three parts. The first, which we read in the first two chapters, gives us a message to all of Israel and then specifically the Northern Kingdom. In chapters 3 through 6, and we just got started with chapter 3 today, explains the message to the northern kingdom and its leaders more specifically. These are mostly poems, and then chapters 7 through 9, which is the end of the book, are largely Amos's visions depicting God's coming judgment of the northern kingdom. Remember, they have about 20 kings over their extensive period of time, and all of them are considered evil and unfaithful to God. So the chapters in Amos we read today are purposefully designed to start by accusing the northern kingdom of Israel's neighbors of wrongdoing. So we were first hearing about all the neighbors. But then Dr. Mackey explains it all circles on a map when he's telling all these stories. It's like all these enemies are in a circle before Amos speaks at great length about Israel, who's in the center of the map and the center of this story outside of God himself, right, who are supposed to be faithful. Remember, the promised land was in the center of the earth. They're supposed to be in the center doing God's work and representing God, uh, being faithful and a blessing to all nations, putting God on display, and they're just becoming a kingdom of priests. But instead, Amos speaks most poignantly to the wealthy who are exploiting and not caring for the poor, sending them into debt slavery and oppression without representation. Amos brings up Egypt and Israel's history, being oppressed as slaves under Pharaoh, bringing their attention to their complete lack of acknowledgement of their very own history. 
their God and their laws that emphasize redemption and restoration as a reflection of God himself. God is angry, I feel like rightly so, at this complete lack of remembrance that leads to a breach of the covenantal laws. And in Amos chapter 3, it reiterates how God chose Israel from among all the nations, not because they were better or special, but because God chose them to be a blessing to all the nations. This points back to Genesis 12, where God picked Abraham to forefather all of Israel, not because of Abraham, but because God chose him to represent him in the world. From my church service earlier today, I can also see connections to Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 through 9, which talks about God's chosen people and how God has been faithful to his promises because of love. In that verse, in Hebrew, God describes his people as treasured possessions. And in the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 13, verses 44 to 52, the kingdom of heaven itself is described like a treasure hidden in a field. There's this sense of the kingdom of heaven, God's presence being present, something given or unveiled that's accessible today, something invested that we invest in. And Romans chapter 8, verse 28 to 39, describes yet again how he chose us out of love, not merit, and it is through him we are justified. We're made treasures with a special blessing for the purpose. And these passages, as well as the story we've been reading and attesting to the fact that God's peace and purposes are found in his presence, not the absence of a storm, that God is working all things in the story for his goodness, although all things may not be independently good in the story or our lives, and there will certainly be challenges and falling down. But what then? And what's more? We know that nothing can separate us from God's love, so we walk through the valley with known dangers and the wilderness with new experiences that require trust. We are constantly being reminded and offered, in capitals, great privilege, in capitals, great responsibility, in capitals, great consequences at stake. These three things cannot be untethered, like a three-stranded cord they're woven together. And as U.S. past president John F. Kennedy states, with privilege comes responsibility which perhaps he got from scripture, where God gave an awesome call, appointment, blessing, and expected that blessing. The awesomeness of the privilege of a close personal relationship with God that where he provides for their needs and future progeny to be central in blessing all nations, putting God on display, interceding in prayer, being prodigally generous, not oppressive to the poor, and helping others navigate to him for atonement, redemption, restoration, healing. Breaching this great responsibility, which is tethered to the great privilege, it results in a great consequence. There is consequence of exploiting the blessing, the privilege. And Dr. Mackey explains how Amos points out three main failures of the northern kingdom. And I can't help but see the connections to the New Testament Pharisees and Zealots and our current culture today. This first issue that Amos is focusing on is religious hypocrisy, where the kingdom of the north was walking through sacrificial actions without a sacrificial heart that was transformed and willing to also care for the poor, which they were called to do by their own laws and by Yahweh himself. More on Amos's exposure of the northern kingdom's hypocrisy that leads to injustice and unrighteousness tomorrow. 
pray for me, I'm praying for you. My prayer is this, found in Philippians 1, 9 through 11, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. What is this fruit? It is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Galatians 5, 22 through 24. See you tomorrow.